Welcome to the Bolt Zone. This is a competitive magic podcast for the average spike, co-hosted by me, Cody DeBose, and the former PT champion and magic world champion, Nathan Stoyer. We're bringing you the best tips, tricks, and strategies to improve your game and be a better player. And today we have a lot to talk about. We're going to be talking about deck building, deck sizes, some interesting trends we're seeing right now. But before we get into the overview for the episode, Nathan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Cody. And you know, one thing that I find super exciting about what's going on in modern in particular is just there's been some adjustments and shakeups due in no small part to a card we're going to be talking a lot today about, which is up the beanstalk. So yes, really think about those in. beans. Yeah. I mean, up the beanstalk is like one of the most unique designs of a card we've seen. And initially, you know, when we saw it, it was a very difficult card to evaluate because on the surface, it's one green for a two mana draw card with tremendous upside. And you don't need that much work to make it just a good card on rate as a two mana draw too. So excited to get into more of that, but that's just a sneak preview of some of the stuff we're going to be covering today and what I'm most excited to talk about. Yeah, same. I'm also excited to, to sort of break this deck down and sort of look at some of the decisions that are being put into it. But we do have some other topics to talk about as well. So we're talking a little bit about modern a little bit about pioneer today uh the big theme is basically we're seeing a lot of people sharing lists that are are having success and are not 60 card lists you know whether it's going 62 to 75 cards in a four color list in modern we saw a super interesting yogmoth list um running a 12 card sideboard and we'll we'll break that down and then a combo deck in pioneer that's actually running yorian so going up to the full 80 cards so some interesting trends there as the meta continues to evolve but before we we get into the episode a couple of shout outs thank you to those who have taken the time to listen and support the show we appreciate all the feedback and support i'm going to give a huge shout out to our new patron nate winslow who joined last week so thank you for that nate we appreciate you and are happy to have you aboard and thank you to all the other patrons who have kept up their support as always we also have some new merch over at both shop we'd love to have you check that out we've had some orders come in over the past few weeks and can't wait to see you um, wearing the merch in the wild so if if you did snag some, be sure to tag us on Twitter using hashtag BoltZoneChat with your favorite hat, hoodie, or t-shirt so, so we can see it. We'd love to see you uh, repping the brand. And if you'd like to support the Patreon, you can do that over on Patreon. We'll put the link for that in the show notes as well. We have some new tiers over there that you can get coupons for the merch and lots of other benefits. So if you'd like to support the show, we'll put the link for that in the show notes. But Nathan, so let's talk about um, just some some recent results what's been going on before we we dive into the topic today what have you been up to what have you been playing anything exciting going on well first i gotta say i got my bolt the bird crew neck recently and i've loved it it's super comfortable super great i will say just wanted to mention again that like really love the merch from the shop so definitely get that if you have the chance um in the magic sphere i actually had the chance to play two showcases this weekend and so the formats for those were modern and Pioneer, which is perfect for the focus of this show. Mm-hmm. I spent a bit of time thinking about what I wanted to play in Modern. And so actually throughout the week, I played a bit with the Beanstalk decks in various forms. And one thing that I quickly realized is that if you're playing something similar to the 
you know, cascade beanstalk lists, which we'll talk about a bit more, but essentially the plan being instead of cascading into rhinos with your shardless agents, you cascade into up the beanstalk and you use the elemental package in order to draw a lot of cards and get ahead on cards. So I spent a bit of time working on those decks and I quickly realized that one common issue is sometimes you can deck with those strategies and you can definitely run out of cards, which sounds like, okay, if you have your old deck in hand, how do you run out of cards? But sometimes you get to a spot where when you play these decks, you end up not being able to cast your excess five drops because you've already put three beanstalks in play. You're turning through your deck and you realize, well, if I cast three more five drops, I'm going to deck. One way yeah. that I've seen to alleviate that issue is just main deck and endurance. And you actually can never deck when you have only one endurance if they don't have counter spells because you can stack the triggers such that you evoke your endurance before you resolve the trigger. Kind of op- opposite to what you expect given that the success of Scam has been on the back of doing the opposite order of that. But this is a pretty cool interaction that I've seen that just lets you maintain your deck size and one slot solving that entire issue right there seems like a huge plus. So Yeah, it's pretty cool, here. the infinite endurance glitch. I like the infinite endurances. Enjoyed that. <laughs> I played Scam, actually, Blackroot Evoke in the showcase because while I thought the bean decks might have been the best choice, I was woke up that morning and I decided, ooh, I feel pretty tired. And the thought of grinding through some of these bean mirrors <laughs> makes me feel like, oh my gosh, like I cannot play 50 minute rounds right now. So yeah. instead of that, I decided good good old black red was a good strategy to play for the weekend. And it went okay. I ended up going three and two. And then I decided to drop once I hit my second loss because this says the event was pretty big. And I just didn't really have it in me to grind out the rest of the rounds. I think it was nine rounds on Saturday. But mm-hmm. One thing that was pretty fun was I played against one of the four color beanstalk decks, and oh man, is Bowmaster good in that matchup? It's like yeah, it's super good. All star there. Beans so, does not say may draw. Yeah, not an optional draw. Also, why you can deck out. So that was cool to see. You know, Cody, you might have some more experience with this, but I played a scam mirror, and I just felt like man, I'm in such a good position right now. And then three draw steps later, the game completely turned when when they drew a sequence of like land fury shieldred when they were hellbent and yeah absolutely for sure but but that was it (laughs) there's definitely i think that the scam mirror is like people complain about playing it but i think it's actually really intricate and a really fun like mid-range mirror because you know you have things like that where you where it can turn around and you can you can like claw your way back out of nothing with the right draws or or the right sequencing so yeah Yeah. feels bad from the other side always but (laughs) I do think that it's actually a pretty intricate and skill testing matchup, but there are certainly sequences where it's like, okay, I've got my opponent in this position after like some good early game exchanges. And now they need this exact sequence to get back in the game. And the cards are very powerful and swingy. And so hard cast fury is probably like the best way for you to be able to turn it, turn a game on its head rather. And so I, I definitely noticed that it's like probably the most important card in the mirror matches agree yeah for sure and shieldred also has been has been really good too you know there's a lot of pressure on your removal and you know being five toughness it, it dodges the fury whether it's hard cast or evoked so you know really fatal push after something leaves the battlefield or, or terminate being the only answers to it is good and then you know it's it's also punishing redraws with fable and just puts a lot of pressure on after you know hopefully you've already put some pressure on so 
another key card. I think that I've seen people going up to like, you know, two or even three copies now when, you know, even a few weeks ago that was zero or one. Yeah, no, definitely. And I do think shoulders really strong in those matches. The other card that I played, which hasn't been super popular as of late, but I found quite impressive was bone crusher giant. I played three copies of bone crusher in my sideboard. Um, just as a way of being better against the ring decks and also a card that is very good into the scam mirror, I think. Curious yeah, you super good. Scale. But I think that the strength of Bone Crusher is just when you get to trade the stomp mode for a Dothy or even a Bowmasters or a Fable token or a Ragavan, um, th- then the game ends up being like, okay, you're up this actual piece of material when all is said and done because a 4-3 is a real card. It's not nothing in the mirrors. So... That felt really strong to me as a plan, and it was kind of the way that I was able to leverage my two-for-ones that were kind of just like reasonable cards in the matchup already. I liked that plan a lot. Yeah, for sure. I also am a fan of Bone Crush. I've been you know, kind of dabbling with one or two in the sideboard, especially for the mirror. I think it's it's strong, you know, and then in some other matchups too, it can kind of just randomly be good. It's good against uh, the ring decks to be able to kind of push through those last few points of damage. So I'm definitely a Bone Crusher fan. I think that it's interesting, you know, if all the scam decks are picking it up, I think it stock might go down, you know, just a bit. But right now, I think it's definitely a strong choice. Totally. I agree with that. Uh, have you seen uh, that people are, are starting to try out Roiling Vortex now, given the fact that like Rhinos is kind of getting overshadowed by the Cascade Bean deck. Roiling Vortex is also good into four color, turning off the elementals, puts pressure on their ley line bindings as like another target. Any thoughts on that? Well, I also played Roiling Vortex this week, and that was the next card I was going to mention. You stole that right out of my mouth because that was the other tech that um, a few people in my testing group found for the event. They were like, okay, Roiling Vortex is a great cyborg card versus a lot of these four-color decks. Let's try that one out. And I didn't draw it in my two matches I played against four-color decks, but mm-hmm. every single time I was thinking about it, I was like, if I draw Roiling Vortex here, it's like insane early in the game. I liked it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It almost feels like... So you know how people talk about like Leyline of the Void? You know, They're like, we're going to play this Leyline and hopefully start the game with it to shut off Scam's best, fastest draws and, and ability to kind of get out ahead. Roiling Vortex mm-hmm. almost feels similar, like it's playing a similar role in the four-color matchup where like you play this and you're shutting down their ability to just pitch their stuff and go nuts and you know draw again off beans if you can ever combine it with a bow masters then they're just extra punished and they almost can't at that point be pitching stuff they almost can't be casting their five mana stuff so it, it just seems kind of like a linchpin in that matchup i totally agree i i think brawling vortex might become stock in a lot of the scam lists if beans picks up in with even more popularity but yeah the the other thing I, I did this weekend was on Sunday, I played in the Pioneer Showcase, like I mentioned, and mm-hmm. what I played Lotus Field in that format. I really enjoyed playing Lotus Field, and especially with the uptick of Phoenix, it just seemed like a very good choice because yeah. that's a matchup where Lotus has a pretty great advantage, especially like when you get to go to Cyborg, you have a lot of really strong one cards, like singular cards that shift the entire game on its head. For example, like, Dragon Lord Dramoka, Sphinx of the Final Word, even Thought Distortion, with the exception of getting Narcissus Reversal, can be really good. And so I I really liked that matchup. And 
I did reasonably okay with Lotus. I I again went three two with the deck. You know, some middling results overall. But what I did find to be very good was wow, was I like crushing these Phoenix decks? And I I generally feel like when people start respecting Lotus Field, you know, it becomes a lot worse. For example, like in a field where there's a lot of aggro decks. It can be kind of awkward. It's just pretty direwolf dependent for those matchups. But sure. when Phoenix is popular, it pushes a lot of those decks out, which then creates even more room for Lotus than you'd think by just improving one matchup. It actually improves the metagame as a whole for you when one deck becomes popular that pushes out the bad matchups and is your good matchup like that. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing to know, especially with Pioneer, because we see that happen you know, quite a bit where that exact situation arises when you're trying to think about metagaming and your, and your approach to it, you have to think not only about the first order effects, but also, you know, the second and third order effects and how, you know, one deck like Phoenix popping up is going to affect everything else. So Lotus does seem like it's, it's pretty well positioned right now. Yeah. As long as Phoenix stays popular. And, you know, for the time being, we can expect that trend to continue just because the addition of Picklock Prankster has made a pretty big difference in the deck. Um, People are playing anywhere between two and four copies of that card right now. And I got to say, allowing you to make like a two-mana piece of the puzzle, essentially grabbing treasure crews and milling that many cards deep is quite nice. You don't have to think of the body as like a huge part of text on the card. It's just like pieces was already one of your best cards, and now you have a lot of copies of a similar effect. Yeah, the body is just kind of there as a bonus, you know, if, if, if everything's gone wrong and you have nothing else to do. Right. And I guess the other thing to note is just being an instant means that you get to leverage it better in post-board games too when you're boarding in more counter spells and trying to interact more. It punishes them for not playing into your spells. So Definitely. that's a good, card, good reason to play more copies of it as well. But tell me, Cody, what were you up to this weekend? And were you playing any tournaments? What was that like for you? Yeah, so this past weekend, actually, I was not playing a turn- any tournaments. This is the first weekend I've uh, not played at anything for quite a while, actually, but it was my fiance's birthday, so we spent some time down in Cincinnati. But the weekend before, I, I did play an RCQ. I played Scam. Surprise, surprise. I was able to top eight there. I went undefeated in the Swiss. This is, I think, the third RCQ that I've top eighted, so we're, we're getting there. I can smell that invite, hopefully, this weekend. But yeah, I made it to top eight, died in the first round of Burn after I had beat Burn 2-0 in the Swiss, so that, that felt kind of bad. But, you know, it's a good time. I'm, I'm up in the air about what to play this weekend. We'll have to talk about it at the end once we go through these. But yeah, so that, I've been playing a lot online, uh, a couple of back-to-back strong leagues with uh, a pretty cool blue-black ring deck that's felt pretty strong. But yeah, so after after a week off and coming off getting bounced in the top eight in the first round, I'm excited to get back at it this weekend. What tournaments do you have this weekend? Like how many RCQs or what formats are they? Modern? Uh, just one just one RCQ this weekend. It's a modern two slaughter. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. And, and it's not an hour drive for once. It's only like 20 minutes. So that that's nice too. That's awesome. How many events are left in the season uh, at this point? I know we're sort of closing in on, you know, Maybe, I don't know if we're at the halfway point. Are we close to the modern season being over? Do you know how much time is I think is we're left? probably either pretty close to halfway or a little over. I know there's, at least around me, there's events going on into like the first or second week of December. But it, but it is coming to a close. And for me personally, too, like I'm kind of giving it, you know, a couple more weeks. And then I'm going to really be diving more into Pioneer and testing for Atlanta. Yeah, I've been focusing a lot on Pioneer and helping people out with uh, deck selection and just 
generally coaching that format a lot more since people are getting ready for Atlanta. So that's always a fun time for me when RC season rolls around and it's approaching. I, I spend a lot of my time doing coaching for those formats and it also helps me improve my knowledge and can take that into the RC as well. So it's a, uh, it's kind of a nice way of staying into in the format without an upcoming tournament myself besides uh, the RC. I'm excited to play in it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's not that far out at this point. It's, it's in December, but it is the last RC of the season for every region. So that's a really different shift from previous ones where, you know, maybe it's been a little bit earlier that we have that RC. Yeah, it's, it is interesting that it's, it's like dead last and, also something that's kind of weird this time around is that like you know we've had a couple already by the time atlanta rolls around in december there's going to be a whole other set in the format compared to like the results we've seen already from the ones that have happened oh yeah that's right there's going to be a whole new set before this even happens so a lot of shifts could happen if that set has good cards for for uh the top pioneer decks or maybe a big shakeup happens who knows yeah for sure that's that's one of the reasons like i haven't yet you know kind of dove in and, and started testing real seriously because who knows what's going to happen when that set comes let's talk about themes and and uh some of the most recent shifts and how these decks are configured because i know we both were excited to cover well what are people doing over here with their 62 card 70 card beanstalk lists yeah it's a super interesting trend well let's start with a list that top eight of the showcase this weekend so Actually, one of my teammates on Team Handshake and close friends, Tristan Wildenrue, top aided with a pretty innovative 70-card four-color build. And you can find those on Twitter or find them on Goldfish. I believe his Twitter is Tristan Wildenrue or Tristan JWL, one of the two. That's his uh, Magic Online name. But the interesting shifts in his deck is his deck was actually built more like a, a Time Warp combo deck with the Bean Plan. And so the idea behind this list is you place three time warps in the main deck two bring to lights. So effectively five copies of time warps that he can access and four beanstalks plus eight cascaders with four Arden Pleas and four Charlotte's agents. And it's built as a Bant deck splashing murderous cut. I, I actually really love the addition of murderous cut here because murderous cut allows you to have a card that triggers beanstalk often costs one to two mana and is also just like a pretty efficient way of using resources that your deck doesn't need to take advantage of otherwise being those graveyard cards. What right. are your thoughts on on that slot and how he's used some of these slots? Yeah, I, I like Murder's Cut a lot too. I think that, like you said, you have no other use for the graveyard in this matchup really. So so being able to kind of harness that that extra power and, and getting another important five drop that's going to trigger beans while also removing something is important. And I think a lot of, we've also seen, especially in these like four color mirrors, which this is certainly different than most four color builds, but a lot of them are, are playing Elish Norn too. And this gives you another way to, to deal with Elish Norn that your ETBs are not able to take care of. So I think that's important. And yeah, it's a spicy inclusion. And I'm looking at the mana base that he has too. And I like that he's gone a lot further into supporting black mana with you know the two black triomes i think even with one you're you're pretty reliably able to to get to it but but having that extra option there to be able to cast this murderous cut and i I see he has a dismember in there too you know be able to cast black and to bring to light to get that time warp like we talked about is great too so the ardent plea is interesting as well a lot of the lists we've seen recently are are running bloodbraid elf as 
a four drop that's cascading, but but ardent plea is is nice and giving you another four hits at being on turn three, and then the ability on there, you know, giving yourself a little boost in combat is nothing to slouch at either. Right, especially with solitude. I mean, those things add up once you cast multiple copies of ardent plea. One right. thing that I particularly like about it is also it's just a blue card and. This builds playing three force of negation and two common yeah. deer. So the idea here is just like your deck is actually supposed to be relatively unfair. Like you're drawing cards and your goal is to cast a lot of free expensive cards along with time warps that refuel your hand. And so once you reach the stage where your time warp draws to and lets you develop because you're getting ahead on lands and sort of doing other things if you have an Omnath in play, the game's almost over at that point. But the, the free spells are why this deck is so good. Like this build doesn't get to play Fury, but instead having access to yeah four solitude, three force negation, two commandeer is a lot of ways of just taking advantage of the beanstalk. I I thought this build was particularly innovative because it recognized that the way that this deck typically loses, it loses to unfair non-creature permanence, and it's already pretty good against things like. Um, scam the way it's set up right now. Like it, there's so much removal in this build that it's right. much less of an issue. So I I watched Tristan test a little bit with this deck and hearing his thoughts on why it should be 70 cards was very interesting as like this deck is supposed to be more similar to a toolbox deck where you don't need to like worry about having your cards um, like not drawing your most powerful cards all the time. You have so much redundancy in the beanstalks that the goal of it is to make sure that you have a variety of ways of like uh, producing something like time warp because you get to play five copies in this build. And normally you'd only get to play like two. If you played 60 cards, you just wouldn't have room for more copies. Um, a lot of your cards are just kind of replaceable too. Like the, the core of the deck being, you know, eight cascaders four beanstalk and, for Solitude, for Binding, for Omnath means that there's a lot of wiggle room with the rest of the slots. And so I really like how we took advantage of making sure the rest of the slots played particularly cohesively with Beanstalk and gave you that free interaction. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think you just touched on it too, but like with Beanstalk and with how much drawing you anticipate doing in this deck, like the fact that it's 70 cards, you're still going to see more of your deck than you know a, a typical 60 card deck is going to in every game and just having access to the different answers and, and you're you're going to find the pieces you need once you get the engine going and you have a total of 12 ways to get a beanstalk into play by turn three so you're, you're going to do that you're going to be drawing cards and once you set that up like you said the game can just kind of be over sometimes right i do wonder if this is something that people will move towards like playing more than 60 is a little bit scary as a concept but I do think that there's a lot of promise and merit to this particular build and also a lot of room for innovation. Like there's so much you could do to change these decks. I think this build in particular has a pretty strong edge in the mirror match where it has like two endurances and a lot of ways of going over the top with the forces and commandeers. And so I watched him play against something like the four color ring deck, for example, and it wasn't particularly close. The way his deck is set up, he just can ignore the card draw on their side because once the game gets to a point where each player has drawn their deck, well, he can draw as much of his deck as many times as he wants the way this deck <laughs> And the time warp combo, again, it's just you cast a time warp, you time warp again, you time warp, you eventually endurance, you shuffle in the time warps, you have bring to lights, more, t- more time warps. And so I saw him take like 
six or seven turns in a row and kill the opponent in testing. And I was immediately very impressed with this deck. So would have been my backup pick for the weekend if I hadn't been more tired for the showcase itself. <laughs> yeah, definitely will be interesting to see how this Beans Cascade deck evolves because it, it seems like, you know, right now it's it's more powerful than a lot of like flash in the pan style decks we see there's people talking about like this is the most powerful deck i've played since like um tibalt cascade and obviously it's not that good but um it's it is really strong and i'm interested to see like you said there's a ton of ways to configure this and sort of pick up an edge i think learning how to navigate the mirror optimally is going to be big over the next couple weeks couple months as as it evolves Let's talk about the sideboard on this list for a minute. He has the four Force of Vigors, and that's what we've seen most lists go to. What are your thoughts on Force of Vigor right now? Because it's obviously really good in the mirror. I think Force of Vigor is pretty excellent just in general. Like It's one of the more high-impact sideboard cards you can play. And while it doesn't trigger Beanstalk, it plays into the theme of like you want your cards to be free because you can recoup the cards that you lose pretty well. I mean, it solves so many issues for this deck where if you're playing in something like Amulet or Hammer Time, like you, you really want access to Force Vigor or something like Scales, which has been on the uptick as of late. So I, I do like the Force of Vigors a lot, and it seems like a no-brainer to play as many copies of that effect as you can when you have a build like this. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It just gives you that that extra edge you need in the in the tougher matchups. And I mean, really, this deck has answers to everything, and that's a big part of it. The two just members in the sideboard are interesting to me because you have, you know quite a bit of removal already in the main do you think that's just like a nod towards stuff like scam that you know you just need the answer quickly or or what are your thoughts on that i think it's for bowmasters because you want a removal spell that doesn't trigger beanstalk when they have bowmasters in play which is actually sure. an awkward thing that happens but i'm not gonna lie i i'm a little skeptical of the dismembers in this build and that's like one thing which i would probably test more before saying it's good or bad i i think on first glance it might be worse than something like dead gone which he's elected to play one copy of so far on the sideboard but i struggle to see you know the upsides of dismember over dead gone given the four life loss points um that you have to pay and the other upside of dead gone i guess is like you can beat turn one fury with it or Mm -hmm. a grief but might not be enough yeah i almost wonder if something like a split between dead gone and like fire and ice could be maybe the better answer because then you're kind of covering both angles of like showing your your scam match up a little bit and then also having an answer to bowmasters that's not triggering beans yeah totally agree i could see that we also didn't mention set adrift that one i thought was sick that was a sweet piece of tech yeah do you do you want to tell everyone what set adrift does that's not one we see very often set adrifts a five and a blue delve spell that simply says put target non-land permanent on top of its owner's library. And so not only does it trigger beans, it's kind of like murderous cut in that it can often kill a creature. But the upside of this one is it can also put something like the ring on top and give you that window once you get going to find a force of negation for it on the way back down. Also, resetting the opponent's draw step is nothing like minor. If you get to do that to like a mediocre to bad card that they have in play, it can essentially end the game on the spot because you know there's nothing they can draw besides that card and it's hard for them to get back from that position. So I saw uh, a lot of use case for this card, but again, it sort of competes with Murderous Cut, so I don't know how many devil spells you can realistically run between those two cards. Yeah, because you're not like innately filling the graveyard 
you know, some like something like Mark Ty does and, and the pitch spells aren't going to the graveyard, like the, the cards you're pitching, obviously. So yeah, it's, it's good to utilize, but like you said, it's hard to, hard to say what the right number is. Right. It's more of a byproduct of your deck functioning that you get cards in the graveyard. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about uh Bloodbraid Elf for a second in, in that build um, that kind of leans more closer to like traditional four color. So with Bloodbraid Elf, you can cascade into a couple of things. So like you can cascade obviously into a shardless agent and then cascade that into a beans. Um, or you can also cascade into a Teferi. You can cascade into an endurance if you opt to run that in the main. And then what something I've seen is just like having haste on that card can be important. You know, whether you're just trying to push through damage quicker, this deck just in general, I think closes the game a lot quicker than like traditional four color and four color ring builds do. But what are your thoughts on, on Bloodbraid Elf? Obviously, it's a very good card, but I think Bloodbraid Elf can be a little bit awkward in this build in that a lot of the cards I want to play to make my deck a little more flexible are cut off with Bloodbraid Elf. Like the idea of cascading into Endurance seems really bad to me a lot mm-hmm. of the time. Um, I do think that it's fine. I'm not sure how much like I, I ideally want to build my four color deck in a way where I'm playing towards inevitability and not trying to maximize the value of a three, two with haste. I thought that the coolest way of utilizing blood braid and also just a sweet card in the shell was like, if you could play something like elder deep fiend, which popped up in the last day or two. And I thought was like awesome tech for this deck. If you do something like cast solitude on their upkeep, kill a creature and then elder deep fiend with the trigger on the stack in order to, draw a card with Beanstalk and tap their lands, that's like an instantly game-winning play. And I also think with something like Bloodbraid Elf, you can take pretty good advantage of the Elder Deep Fiend just because, well, okay, 3-2 gone, I'm going to tap your lands, time walk you essentially, and draw a card. So I, I do think that Bloodbraid Elf has some room, but I I do also feel that it might not end up being the right card in, in the last iteration of this shell that we discover. Yeah, that's kind of the vibe I've gotten just from playing a little bit with it, too. Like, it, it just doesn't feel... Uh, of all the things you can do with this deck, it feels like one of the, the weaker options. And, you know, I haven't had a chance to to try out Tristan's version and, like, the, the Ardent Please and stuff, but I can definitely see that being, you know, more favorable when the goal is just get get beans into play and do stuff and draw cards. And then, you know, being able to have access to, like you said, those, those extra three mana things like Force and Endurance in the main seems really strong and more valuable than the idea of being able to like double cascade or, or cascade a Teferi into play. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, it's not that bad for you to do something like cast blood braid and hit Teferi, but also it's an extra mana and the three, two really has to be worthwhile for you to want to make plays like that. So we'll see my hot, my hot take is blood braid elf will be cut by the end of the year and all the stock builds. I could definitely, definitely see that being true. All right. Any other thoughts about four color going over the 60 card threshold? Any thoughts about beans before we move on to our next topic? No, let's do it. Okay, cool. So before we talk about Yogmoth and a 12 card sideboard, we want to let you know this podcast is brought to you by Boogie Board, the ultimate LCD life pad. Boogie Board's patented reusable writing surface allows you to track life totals and jot down quick notes during casual or competitive play. Never worry about ruining a notebook in your bag or running out of paper mid-game again. After taking down your opponent, just press the button to clear and you're ready to start over. Boogie Board's best-selling jot tablet offers plenty of writing surface while the jot pocket is perfect for tighter playing spaces. Boogie Board is available at friendly local game stores across 
across the country and at major retailers. You can learn more at myboogieboard.com slash games. That's myboogieboard.com slash games. Never start a match without your boogie board. All right. So next up, we're going to talk about Yawgmoth. And, you know, this deck is, is one that is certainly not as popular or as flashy as the Beans deck right now. But a couple of weeks back, we saw um, Zerk and Reed Alexander on Twitter posting a pretty wild list that featured a 65-card main deck and a 12-card sideboard. And before we sort of discuss and break down this, I, w- I want to read um, what Zerk posted on Twitter about this this build of Yawgmoth. So he says, in game one, you want Yawgmoth the most on average, but to fit two Eldritch Evolutions and Silver Bullets, that might be very good, but depends on the matchup. I simply had to add more cards to the deck. Postboard is a different story. You know exactly what you're facing and can adapt accordingly. Sideboard becomes as important as Yawgmoth's. Um, things like Force of Vigor against Amulet and Hammer, Necromentia against combo decks, etc. So I wanted to go to normal, in quotes, deck size postboard to maximize the chances to see them, as they are not tutorable by Eldritch Evolution or Cord. Um, he says you might put Shelly, Might, and one more card to the sideboard, remove a land, and have a functional 60 and 15. The ability to have both Silver Bullets available and reasonable chances to see Yogg as often... 60 card decks cut on Eldritch Evolution to fit all the one ofs made me run this experiment. Given the results of my run and reads, it's at least functional and should be investigated further. So, after hearing that, after seeing the list, Nathan, what is your gut reaction to this? Well, I am one of the least experienced players with Yogmoth compared to any other deck in modern. To be honest, it's like the deck I have probably four or five games with Lifetime. When I look at the list, it seems to me like the theory makes sense, but the top cards in the deck are so much better than the weaker links that I could see this logic not actually tracking all that well. Overall, like, for example, the games that I play against Yawgmoth, I'm mostly worried about, are they going to get a Yawgmoth into play quickly or a Grist into play quickly? And those two cards tend to be so much more threatening than the rest of the deck that I can see this just not being a good enough justification. On the other hand, you do get to play some very strong cards if you build your deck this way. So I overall would say I'm not sure, but I understand what he's going for. <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you as far as like not having a ton of experience with this deck. And so, you know, I don't feel like I'm the right person to say whether this is, is right or wrong. But I do think something that's interesting is we're seeing a specialist with this deck. Like Zerk is, is probably one of, if not the best Yawgmoth players right now, plays the deck all the time, is putting up top results with it all the time. So like when you see someone who's so deeply ingrained in an archetype going off script and and making changes like this to sort of test them out, I think that that's important because, you know, those people are the ones that are knowing the ins and outs of the deck and and how it operates and, and how to optimize it. Um, so again, without saying whether, you know, this is right or wrong, it's, just interesting. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Do you think we'll see this more with other decks moving forward this trend? I don't think that it should be a generically accepted thing, to be quite honest. But I I think that it has happened almost by coincidence in two top tier decks in modern. So we'll see if something else pops up that makes this sort of trend of playing more than 60 cards a thing. Um, the one thing I wanted to comment on was the addition of Soul Cauldron and also just like how that maybe shifts the deck in a way that 
makes it a more competitive strategy, like one of the better ones modern now, just given the fact that when you have Soul Cauldron in play, you're no longer worried about them killing Yawgmoth and you losing that way of getting ahead like your engine. Also, this is an interaction that I don't know how it works, but how does Soul Cauldron work with Grist? Do you have any idea? Like if you It works very well. <laughs> really? Yeah, so like so if you have a creature out and you you exile Grist to the Soul Cauldron and put a counter on your creature, when that first happens, you're able to tick it up, like use Grist plus one ability and do the the mill and make an insect thing. And then that creature actually gets a loyalty counter on it. So then, you know, if you can do it again, you get up to two, and then on the next turn, you can actually use the minus ability then because it get, it gets all the abilities you just have to to get there but like it goes crazy once you have a couple of creatures out you start putting plus one plus one counters on stuff you know you have the undying creatures once that grist gets exiled things can get out of control really quickly so you can put like if you have three creatures of counters in play can you just turn them all into mini grist making a ton of one ones you can yeah if you if they all have a counter and you exile the gris with soul cauldron you can tick up all of them and and do the insect thing three times <laughs> wow that's an incredible interaction I'm yeah it's crazy okay and the other thing is <laughs> fulminator mage with Agath- agatha's soul cauldron is one of the nastier things you can do where if you tutor for fulminator mage and you sacrifice it and then you have soul cauldron in play and you put a counter on something and sacrifice it you can kind of pop off from there and and um, you know, one sequence that you can do is let's say you go like young wolf into soul cauldron into fulminator mage, you can blow up both of their lands and end up with the, uh, the young wolf, which is pretty awesome. Actually, yeah. can you go three lands? Let's see. You go young wolf, you go fulminator mage and your soul cauldron in play. You sacrifice the fulminator mage. You put a counter on the young wolf. Oh, I guess you don't return it if you do it that way. So it's a little more awkward than I thought, but still a very cool interaction with the rest of your deck to be able to start blowing up lands and fight against big mana decks. Yeah, there's there's some wicked ways to abuse that in this in this list. So yeah, I mean, I think Soul Cauldron has, is just like maybe the second best card in the deck behind Yogmoth, maybe the best card in the deck, I don't know. It just gives the gives the deck so many different lines and like new angles to attack where like I mean, honestly, I think that like if you have a Soul Cauldron in play, your Grist is better off in the graveyard than it is on the battlefield as a Planeswalker because like being able to turn, like you said, every creature into a mini Grist is just like you're you're going to run away with the game if, if that can't be dealt with. And it fixes but, a huge issue for the deck too, right? Like the issue of your shitters aren't particularly effective against like they don't do anything anymore. And, and when you end up in a board state where like, your opponents countered your Yawgmoth and interacted with your Grist. Typically, the Yawgmoth deck has struggled historically, but now yeah. that's not the case. Now you just have this card that says, these are real cards. You have to kill the Soul Cauldron itself or else you're going to lose still. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, this is, you know, another case where in a deck like Scam, you know, there's the debate between going with Leyline of the Void or some other form of Graveyard Hate. And this is, I think, another big case for, for Leyline. But... I want to go back to what you said that you think that going over 60 cards is is in general not correct and that we probably shouldn't see this going forward but we you know we have coincidentally right now with two different decks um let's just expand on that concept a little bit and obviously you know 
we've we always hear that you know 60 cards is best consistency you don't want to be you know running 61 for no reason but let's talk about a little bit more about why that's important and why typically outside of these corner cases sticking with 60 cards is is important right well one thing that most people who play competitively should be familiar with is you want to play 60 cards because conceptually when you're building your deck you typically start your deck building by saying okay here are the strongest 16 cards in my deck and the difference between the first four that you put in and the last four that you put in should be pretty sizable or else there wouldn't really be unique factors in your deck and your deck wouldn't be built around a singular card or several cards and so when you build your deck you're trying to figure out what is my deck trying to do optimally Uh, a good example of this is if you look at Fable of the Mirror Breaker in recent standard decks before it was banned, it was so much stronger than the next best card in those decks that if you were playing a Fable deck, there's no way it would ever be correct to play 61 cards because games where one player drew Fable and games where the other player didn't were so lopsided in terms of who had a higher win percentage in those games. Right. And so this concept should broadly apply to most decks in Magic where playing the minimum amount of cards possible allows you to more likely draw those powerful cards. And that's why we can apply this deck building concept uh, to something like the Beanstalk deck and look at this heuristic and say, wait, actually, this is a deck where the best card in it and the next best card are actually not that far, and the next worst card rather, are actually not that far apart. And when that's the case, you can consider playing more than 60 cards or when there's constraints on how many cards you need to play in order for your deck to still function when you don't want to draw a particular card. So when I say that, I speak to historically scapeshift builds, for example, where you need a high mountain count, but you don't want to play cards that you draw a lot of copies of, because if you do, then your deck becomes more awkward. And so that's an example of like teamer scapeshift in modern in years ago, where you could reasonably play more than 60 cards just literally because your deck needed more cards to function, have a proper setup. So that's mm-hmm. kind of an opposite to that. And that's this, the scapeshift deck building theory is sort of what's being applied here to Yawgmoth, it seems, where actually there's still a defined series of cards that are way better than their counterparts in the Yawgmoth deck. But the fact that you want to have access to these effects means that you need to play more cards so that you end up having this toolbox effect. Or, you know, we could say Birthing Pod, like years ago in Modern, would have a similar heuristic applied to it if you had a lot of cards that you wanted to find, but you couldn't play those cards without cutting down on numbers. Yeah, that that all makes a lot of sense. And I think it comes back to thinking deeply about constructing the deck and what pieces are going into it and, and how they all not only play individually, but all connect together and whether it's worth it to, to sort of change things up. But uh, another thing about this Yawgmoth deck that's worth talking about, I think, is the sideboard. And, and being 12 cards, you know, he had talked about wanting to be able to get closer to that 60-card consistency, like, once you know the matchup and know which cards are good and which ones can come out. To me, the idea of giving up three sideboard slots to slightly improve your number game two, game three seems pretty wild what are your thoughts on that well the biggest hit against this sort of strategy is that you don't just get to slot in three additional spells when you decide to make your deck bigger to have a wider toolbox you also have to increase your land count and so if your plan post board is i'm going to board out the three weakest spells in order to accommodate the upgrades and shifts in your sideboarding build then you also end up with an artificially high land count so 
There's a few reasons why this is a little weaker. You'll end up having to board out some number of lands post-board to accommodate this plan too. I think that, yeah, the biggest strike against this is just in modern, your, your cyber cards are extremely high impact most of the time, or at least you can make it such. For example, this build has two Force of Vigors. You could put in reasonably more Force of Vigors or things like Thoughtseize, which are really high impact in some of your weaker matchups. And that trade-off of not having three extra cyber cards is a really high price to pay in modern. Yeah, I agree for sure. All right. Any other thoughts on this deck before we talk about our next one? Move into Pioneer. Let's do it. All right, cool. So before we talk about our Pioneer deck here, um, we want to let you know that we are now partnering with FlexSlot.gg. And if you're figuring out sideboard math for your next tournament, you should definitely check out FlexSlot.gg. This is a new hub for competitive magic tools. It's currently being developed by well-known NRG grinder in front of the show, George Jabor. George and I had a chance to, to sort of talk things over the last couple of weeks. And yeah, we, we want to let you know that FlexLot is an up and coming tool that is a great way to create, edit and save, share your sideboard guides that you're making for different tournaments. He's also implemented a new mana curve simulator, a drag and drop deck visualizer, and a lot more tools are coming in the near future. So now it's definitely the time to get on board. George is also really receptive to feedback. So it if you have stuff, be sure to let him know. I've been using FlexSlot to, to work on some of my sideboard maps for this RCQ season and I found it a lot easier to use than something like a spreadsheet or uh, in my case, certainly a lot neater than writing by hand. So if you're serious about strategy, give FlexSlot.gg a try today. And uh, the best part is it's totally free. All right. So backing out of modern for a second, we, we talked about Pioneer a bit coming up with Atlanta in December, but I don't know if you if you had a chance to watch. I believe this was the the European RC probably about a month ago now. Um, we saw a really cool combo deck that is running Yorion, which is is interesting. So the core is the Rona Herald of Invasion combo with uh, Retraction Helix and being able to, to loop your Mox Ambers and, and win the game that way. Um, this deck playing Yorion, obviously having to add 20 extra cards, was built in an interesting way to include a different combo with Luca Copper Coat Outcast. And then uh, because your creatures are all two or one drops, um, you're able to sort of combo that and get an Attracts a Grand Unifier into play uh, off the Luca. And then there's also some extra slots in here with uh, Bring to Light, Karns, lots of, of different angles in this deck. But before we sort of dive into the, the specifics, Yorian in a combo deck is pretty wild. Yeah, well, the trade-off that this deck is trying to make is it's like, well, we can play Yorion, and we can now play two combos instead of one in this shell. And the other thing that they're trying to add is like more velocity in the deck, but at the cost of some level of consistency. I haven't had a chance to play this deck, but what has your experience been with, with this deck so far? Yeah, so I have also not been able to play it yet, but I, I've watched some people play it. And you know what? I think the general consensus has been is that despite having 20 extra cards in it, that it's pretty consistent to be able to get to one of your combos, if not both. Um, you have a lot of different ways to access your cards beyond just drawing them. So obviously, you know, we mentioned bring to light, so that can get you just about anything, including Fae of Wishes, which then can get you a card out of your sideboard if you cast it with bring to light. You have Karn also to sort of tutor pieces out of the sideboard. 
You have Tyvar Jubilant Brawler that lets you get your important creatures like um, Kinnon and Rona back from the graveyard if they die, um, and also lets you activate them at instant speed. So, you know, whether you're bringing them back from the graveyard or, or if Tyvar's just on the battlefield and you drop a Rona, you can kind of go off right away. So there's a lot of different avenues to sort of access these tools. And then obviously any deck with Atraxa, once you get an Atraxa in a play, you're already pretty good, but then you're going to see a lot more cards. So I think the general consensus is that, like, yes, we're running more cards with Yorion, but we're still able to do our thing just because there's a lot of ways to to get the pieces online. Right. One thing that people might not be familiar with is how does the Rona combo work in this deck? So uh, this combo is a little bit convoluted, but with Rona and Tivar, you essentially can activate Rona as soon as it comes into play um, and trigger to untap it. So the goal is you can use Rona with Mox Amber, generate a blue mana as it's a legend, cast Retraction Helix on the Rona, and then you can use the Rona to generate infinite mana with Mox Amber and get infinite loots through your deck. And that's because every single time you cast Mox Amber, it untaps, and the Retraction Helix lets you bounce the Mox Amber back to hand. Infinite mana, infinite loots, and from there, you basically just win the game with Karn or some other way. If you have only blue mana, you can get Karn and Aetherflux Reservoir to kill. Right. Yeah, that's, I think, like the, the sort of goldfish mainline but um one other thing that's interesting about yorion and i i heard someone talking about this i forget who it was um but they were talking about how in a similar deck or a similar build of this shell people were playing zerda which like has no relevance to anything whatsoever but just having a um, companion card available to you in the companion zone is nice because when you go to combo off you need at least one card in hand so that you're able to loot but not discard the mox amber and this way, you know, you can have Yorion in, in the companion zone, buy it, and then you have the card and you're good to go. Right. And the other thing this deck is trying to do beyond just being able to combo is you can just put an Atraxa into play. Like, yes, Luke can sneak into play, but when you get an Atraxa into play by casting it with all your mana dorks and Keenan, you end up winning most of the time. Like, it's a pretty messed up card. And that's just like a, a huge advantage of this particular build too. You just cast an Atraxa once you ramp up and most decks fold to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's super easy to ramp to that Atraxa. Like you said, with, with all the different mana dorks, with the Mox Amber, with the Kinnon, there's a ton of ways to to get to that seven mana threshold. And like we mentioned before too, once you get the Atraxa into play, you might just win with that. But if not, you're looking at the top 10 cards. You're probably going to put together one of the combos after that anyway. Yep. Pretty trivial. It's like, a card that individually wins and then also sets up your combo to help you win like the next turn if that's not good enough. Exactly. So I think this deck is another interesting example of someone who's who's sort of broken down the big concepts of what their deck wants to accomplish and recognized, hey, this deck needs more than 60 cards. And in fact, it may be better with 80 cards, despite the fact that we're trying to assemble combos. And I think that's really interesting. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Do you think this deck will have, you know, a home in Pioneer going forward? Do you think it's competitive enough to kind of keep it up? I think it's a little bit unrefined right now. The idea is really cool and good, but I would struggle to see how this deck performs well into something like Phoenix, and I could be wrong, but on paper, it seems to me like mono green without a lot of the cards that make the matchup scary scary for Phoenix. Um, 
Obviously, if you resolve a Traxa, you're going to win a lot of games, but it's hard for Luka to go off, and your Mana Dorks are going to be huge targets for the removal that they want to get out of their hand anyway. So I can see that being a tough matchup as a deck that popped up recently. Yeah. Otherwise, though, the idea is very cool, and I still see this as like a deck that can win any given Pioneer tournament. So I'm looking forward to seeing if it has a lot of success in the near future. Yeah, absolutely. I am too. I, I'm planning to dive into this archetype and test it out a little bit when I start prepping for Atlanta. So we'll uh, we'll get you an update once we have some more time to look at it. But I think that's all we have to mention on it for now. Um, but before we get out of here for today, Nathan, closing thoughts on deck building, anything else you want to mention, you know, this idea of going above 60 cards, you know, we've talked about a lot of stuff with it. It works sometimes when, you know, the deck that you're building works better because of it and that's an intentional choice not one that you're making just because you want to throw an extra card in or or you can't decide what that last cut is this is a very intentional choice made with reasoning and logic behind it and it should only be made in that way but any thoughts you have on this this whole concept i would say that you should be very intentional behind if you decide to go above 60 cards and the default answer should be no you should actually have to have a very convincing reason for why you're doing that thing. And then once you have that reason, you have to double check and triple check if that actually holds up in the games that you play. So it is a sort of thing where, you know, this is a concept people have tried forever and they've tried to iterate by playing more than 60 cards. And most of history has proven that that's not a good thing that sticks amongst top tier strategies. But there's a time and place. And if you can find an exception, by all means, try to take advantage of it and show people how they can step outside of the normal frameworks of deck building and develop new concepts that hold up in today's day and age of very powerful magic cards. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. And, you know, the world of magic today, especially in formats like modern, where there's just so many cards, it's there's just things waiting to be broken. And, you know, who knows, the printing of a new card can spawn something entirely out of the ordinary from what we'd seen before we've seen it with beans we saw it with bow masters a bit ago like it every set it seems like there there's something that's dropping that's just really changing things and not only changing the recent things but also like going back years and years and years with this huge card pool and what you can do with it and how it interacts with the new stuff i think is always worth giving a second look at totally well said goody all right last question before we head out for the day I'm playing an RCQ this weekend. It's modern. I am torn between Beans Cascade and Scam, my one true love. What do you think is the right call for this weekend, Nathan? I would play Beans Cascade under two conditions. You either don't play Bloodbraid Elf or you play Elder Deep Fiend. So you you can do one of those things. Like you can build a deck. I, I think that I would do some build that's actually... Bloodbraid Elf list with some number of other deep fiends in it, and I would play more than sixty cards. So that's my right. hot. Take. That's a, that's a good take. This is this is uh, world champ advice. So I guess I better listen. <laughs> but I mean, if you wake up and and you're uh, you're not feeling it, there's always a safe option in scam. I would not, you know, say anything negative about that being your deck choice for the weekend because we all know that that tech is game against everything in modern when it gets its top draws. For sure. And I think that it, it, if if the end, 
choice ends up being scam that Roiling Vortex and Bone Crusher Giant will certainly make an appearance. All, All right. right. Well, that is going to do it for today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Bolt Zone. If you enjoy the show, please give us a follow and leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice. We love to hear from you. Love hearing your feedback. We read all the reviews. Um, you can get in touch with Nathan and I on Twitter using the hashtag Bolt Zone Chat. We would love to hear your thoughts on the discussion today. The idea of going above 60 cards in your deck building. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you think about the discussion today. And let us know if you're thinking about those beans. If you want to help support the show, you can consider subscribing to the Patreon. Again, the link for that is in the show notes. And don't forget to check out our new merch at boltthebirdmtg.com shop. And until next time, get out there and sling some spells.